I wonder today what your thoughts are concerning the law of God. And, and, and as we speak of the law of God, we're speaking specifically today, and we, the book of the covenant given by God to Moses for the people whom God has just delivered from slavery in Egypt. I asked a question wondering about your thoughts because people have varying ideas about the law. Some see the law as a means to salvation. In other words, they think if I can keep the Ten Commandments or if I keep the Ten Commandments, then, then, then that will allow me to ascend the hill of the Lord. If, if, I'm, if I'm just good enough, if I can check those boxes along the way, we see examples of that in Scripture. Uh, we see a young rich man who comes to Christ and asking him about eternal life, and Christ points him back to the law, and he immediately says, I've kept all the law. I've kept it all. In other words, he was saying, I've never sinned. I've kept all of the law. He was looking for that to be his means to ascend the hill of the Lord. Some think of the commandments as a good guideline for living. And then there are others who may think, and others who have said before, for sure, uh, that they are of no value. In a news article in the uh, Desert News in 2018, about five years ago, so some things have changed in five years, but the reporter discovered in a poll regarding people's views on the Ten Commandments, and, and, and here's what he discovered. He said about 90% of all Americans believe that the commandments prohibiting murder, lying, and stealing are all still useful in our society. It's interesting that they selected those three. The other commandments were helpful in limited degrees. A similar poll was done in Great Britain uh, with pretty similar results, uh, the greatest difference in their response was the Brits uh, who were surveyed uh, openly stated that the first four commandments had no bearing upon life, were not significant, uh, and were not helpful in regards to uh, the same kind of value that came in what they understood as an ethical code from the, from the last six commandments of the ten. I, and I'm not surprised. Uh, and that's five years ago. The Ten Commandments in the Book of Covenant are probably less appreciated uh, today. Our brief treatment today of this text, and I say brief in that you would expect if you looked at Exodus 20 through 23, that whole Book of the Covenant, uh, that how in the world are you going to deal with Ten Commandments and all the other all the other things that are said there, and I just don't want you to feel like that our brief treatment of it in any way point to uh, our belief that they are insignificant. They're not. Uh, what we are trying to do is to try to get an understanding of the whole for the purpose of our study of Exodus to help us understand well, what was God doing in giving the law? Why did He give it? What was He doing? What was the intent of the law? And... Uh, I hope to uh, sometime soon be able to come back and let's give attention to them uh, individually. Israel is called out of Egypt. 
delivered out of bondage by the power of God who has revealed himself to them, stated by his name, the Lord. And he said this, I'm, I am, I'm showing you things about me and giving you an understanding about me that are different than I've given others. It wasn't that I'm different, I haven't changed, but the nature of his revelation to Moses and the nature of his revelation uh, to this group of people is just different. It's different. And they're confronted with certain things because of it. First, they were confronted with uh, who they were going to trust. We've already looked at that. Who were they going to trust? We've already seen that they struggle in that area. Uh, even with all that God had done in the first two months of their journey, and for those who missed last week in the introduction, that's about where we are when we get to Mount Sinai. We're about two months into their journey. Think about all the things that they, again, that they encountered in two months. And in, in two months, uh, they had seen all of the works that God had performed there in Egypt in their deliverance. In two months, uh, just within a matter of a few days after leaving Egypt, their back is against the wall of the Red Sea. The Egyptian army is in front of them and their lives are threatened. And God saves them there. And then there's no water. And then there's no food. Uh, and then there is a, a battle with the Amalekites. And just those things are all, have all gone on and they have seen these things. And yet they're still struggling to trust Him. And at every turn He has worked for them on their behalf to save them, to protect them, to preserve them. They are learning to trust God. Uh, I wonder if you are learning to trust God. I wonder if that is an ongoing thing for you. Are you learning to trust God? Do you trust Him? Are there areas of your life in which you don't trust Him? That would be a reasonable question. And are you learning to trust Him in those areas? Maybe you find trusting Him in some areas easier than others. And then there maybe is a person here today who has, does not profess faith in Christ. And you may reflect on what you have heard about Christ, about the gospel. You may reflect on that and, and, and say, you know what, but I see evidence that I am different now than I was then when I first began to hear the gospel. And there is something different about the way I value him and I value his word. Just know that trusting Christ is a lifelong endeavor. It, it, it does have to begin, but it is a lifelong endeavor. If you're here and a believer, you know that to be true. Hopefully you have seen your trust and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in God, we, 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 in the Father, in the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've, you've seen and recognized how that has grown. A believer's level of trust at any moment may be ebbing and flowing, depending on what you have going on. But there is a trajectory where you believe and you trust and you give way to trusting God. The other thing that's taking place with Israel is that they are finding out and trying to discover who they're going to love. You know, it, it does begin with faith. And, and then that faith, 
uh, in it, and we'll see why in just a moment, translates into love. Here was a covenant God who had pledged His love to them. We, we looked at that briefly last week. Moses recounted the love of God as he penned the song that he and the people of Israel sang. The Lord saved them at the Red Sea, and this is what they sang. You led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You love them. It was a steadfast love. It didn't change. Did you know that God loves you? He is a loving God. He's a caring God. He's a redeeming God. All of that driven out of love. In our text this morning, if you will, look in there in chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. Notice what he says. And you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. He is a loving, loving God. And they're trying to figure out if they're going to love him and how they're going to love him. You know, repeatedly we hear about God's love and we witness his care for his people. Listen to this. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. He, listen to this language of being in the presence of God. A mighty one who will save. He'll rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. Do you hear that? He will quiet you by his love. In other words, he will settle your heart. You will be settled in the fact that he loves you. I wonder today, beyond the soft-soaked kind of talk of love, do you feel settled in your heart today that God really loves you? Or is that just some easy statement? Something that has no real bearing and meaning upon your life. But the reality is that he does. And he loves his children. He loves his children better than any parent in here. Maybe you are the most and are the most loving parent. He loves more than that. We're here in Ephesians Chapter 1 and verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, according to the riches of His love that He has lavished upon us. And then in 1 John four nineteen we hear, We love because He first loved us. Did you get that? He loved us first. He loved Israel first, and now they are trying to work through and figure out if they're going to love God. 
You see, God has loved His people. Now they're working through this. Will they love God? I mentioned this last week, but it's worth asking again, do you love God? The question isn't whether God loves you. The question is, is do you love God? I was thinking about it this week. Looking at my, 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 daily, my, my daily activities, even as I'm praying, even as I'm praying and thinking of you and, and your, uh, your, your face comes to my mind and knowing some of your needs and lifting you up. But I stopped and asked myself, how many times during the course of the day do I tell God that I love Him? And if I do, what does it mean? Do I really love Him? Do you really love God? Or how well did you love God this week? How well will you love God this upcoming week? You know, we sang corporately just a little bit ago, and it, those of you who know us here at OVC, you know everything we do is deliberate. We, we began with talking about the holiness of God. We immediately went into corporately singing that we adore the Father. We adore the Son. We adore the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we don't often stop and say, Holy Spirit, I love you. Did you catch that today? When is the last time you told the Holy Spirit you loved Him? Before you sang the song earlier today. And then we left the corporate setting of that. And with the course, I love you, Lord, we said, I love you, Lord. Not that we adore. We had stated that corporately. When you sang, I love you, Lord, moving away from those remembrances of singing that chorus, if that is a chorus that you're familiar with, did your heart connect with him and your mind? And was that a true expression? An honest expression? I love you, Lord. I know the people trembled in fear of him as we should. We saw that last week, referred to it again today, as they stood at the base of the mountain. But we can respond to God in various ways. Last week it was, when is the last time we tremble before God? This week is, when is the last time we really told God that we loved Him, and that we meant it. Both should be true. Both should be true. Because God reveals Himself in ways when there is tremendous power, and there's thunder, and the ground under our feet is shaking, we certainly then are trembling, should tremble before the power of a holy God. But then when He reaches us as a shepherd, and as a father, and tenderly takes us in, we feel then, we, we feel His presence in that tender, calming, comforting way. And we know that we should respond and tell Him that we love Him. The point is, is both are appropriate. What we need to avoid are these two things. We need to avoid being apathetic toward God just even in our thinking. And we need to avoid being indifferent. I, I, have you ever been apathetic toward Him? 
ever been indifferent toward God? We probably all have done that. We probably have all done that. May have even this past week been apathetic even in our thinking of God. And yet when we see what He has done and the very fact that He gives us life and He gives us all that we have and that He has given us Christ Jesus to ensure that we are righteous and has given us Christ Jesus to ensure that our sin has been atoned for and that we do not have to pay for it because Christ has paid for it. When we think of the reality of that and then what it means to leave this earth and all that we know in one second and then find ourselves in eternity either in the presence of God or eternally separated from God. That's huge. That's huge. And it happens and it happens each day. Now this brings us to our text. You say, when are you going to get to it? And I wanted us to get to it because there is a flow and a gravity that is set up in the course of this because now Israel is faced with something else. Who are they going to obey? Who are they going to trust? Who are they going to love? And, and who are they going to obey? The Lord has called them out of Egypt. He has established them as his people. And you know what? His people need to know what being his people means. They need to know. They need to know what that looks like. One of the reasons why we often speak in the course of our discipleship conversations about what we should look like as a believer is because a believer needs to know what a believer ought to look like. Well, what, what does it mean to be a believer? Well, they were trying to figure out what they needed to know. What does it mean to be the people of God? They had, never, they had never known that they were the people of God in this kind of way. And then God is doing all of these profound things in the course of their presence to show them, to show them who He is. And then that translates into, okay, what does that mean about me? I see that you are a holy God and I tremble in your presence and I know that I am not. But what does your holiness mean for me as you're being your people? So God gives them His law. That is the reason for the book of the covenant. It's to show them, to show them certain things about who God is so that they will, need, they will know who they need to be. And what that looks like. His law wasn't intended to restrict them from good things. So if your idea and thought of the Ten Commandments. This is just a list and I'm just going to use the Ten Commandments. The Book of the Covenant covered more than that. But if you think of the Ten Commandments as it's just a bunch of restrictive guidelines to keep me from doing what I want to do and having all the good things. And that's not, not so. Why? Because we have a loving God that is giving them a guide to the very best thing. I want you to look in chapter 20 and verse 20 and we'll see what he is 
what he is trying to show them. Here is the reason why he has given them the law. Now, he has given the Ten Commandments, okay? Understand that. He has given the Ten Commandments, and, and, and make a note of this. When he gave Moses the Ten Commandments this first time, when he gives that to them, he gives it not just to Moses, but he gives it in their hearing so they hear him give the law. They hear this from God, which means what? God just wants them to know how much He cares about them, and He wants them to know clearly what these guidelines are because they are coming from a loving God who has already demonstrated His steadfast love. So God's not going to bait and switch. He's not shifting here now to become some tyrant. No, He is giving them the way to enjoy what is the very best in life, not just in things, but first and foremost in himself. Look at verse 20. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. That's why he gave them the law, so that they may not sin. So in other words, they will know what things not just that he disapproves of, but they will know the things that are harmful to them in relation to their relationship with him and in relation to the rest of life. Look in verse 22. What is the very best thing? Well, and the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. In other words, he has given them and shown them his very presence and they have heard from the mouth of God the things that are good and that are best. They were fearful. They trembled. Why? Because it was a sinful people before a holy God. But God is saying, that is true. But you have my presence and that is best. And that is best. Turn to chapter 23. Look in verse 20. He goes on to tell them that the other benefits of receiving the law. He said, Behold, I sent an angel before you to guard you on the way, talking about on the way to Canaan, and to bring you to a place where I have prepared Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice and do not rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say so we understand that it's not just his voice, this is the voice of God and you do all that I say then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. In other words, I, I, I have your back and your front in every way. And if they're an enemy to you, then they're my enemy. And you already have seen what I do to those who stand against you. That is his point. And when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites 
and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do they as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I'll take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I'll fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against you whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. And I will drive them out from before you in one year lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against it. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. In other words, what God is doing, He has given them this covenant, this book of covenant, to keep them from sin so that they will enjoy His presence and enjoy all the good things that He has for them. Not to justify them. And I want to make that point. God is not switched in the course of His covenant from what He had stated with Abraham. Turn back to Genesis chapter 15. If you feel like that now there is a covenant that is built around them keeping of the law and that they're going to be justified in that, that is not so. But it's in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. We'll back up in verse 1. And these things, the word of the Lord, came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of the Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be, be. And he, Abram, believed in the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, Abram trusted God, placed his faith in God, and his Faith was counted to him as righteousness. We're not coming now to this covenant, this book of the covenant with Israel, and now all of a sudden God is changing that and it is not about faith. No, it is still about their faith and their trust in him. He has given them this law and giving it to them so that they will know what they are to look like. I want us to track through that for just a minute, the few minutes that we have. Look, if you will, in as we begin, a few things that I want you to see because God wants them to know what He values. Okay? In other words, God, one, in this law, is teaching Israel about the character of God. And consequently, He's teaching us about the character of God. 
But let's look at what it is that he values. One, he values his own glory above everything else. And we have talked about that before. And for some who may be hearing that for the very first time, that may sound confusing. You may sound sounds prideful. How can that be? But notice the very first command. Chapter 20 and verse 2, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because he has already revealed himself to them and he has told them his name and in that he has said there is no other God. There is no other creator. There is no other sustainer. There is no other authority. Everything in the way of God's are those which are formed and fashioned in the eyes and in the minds of men to chart their own way, be their own authority, establish their own direction. And God has said, that is not so. That there is only one God. There's only one God. And he is placing himself at the very beginning of this commandment, pointing them to understand that and to know that. And then he says, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness. And then he goes on and he says, and you will honor my name. And then he goes on and there will be a day set aside where you will worship me. I was thinking this morning whenever I was sitting down here and uh, as I often do, but particularly today for whatever reason. Christianity light doesn't deal with sin and confession, doesn't deal with an absolute need of Christ. Christianity light is help me feel good about where I am and what's going on in my life just to help me through to the next day. And yet I felt a weight and a heaviness this morning, just particularly when we were looking back at the holiness of God and then hearing what Jesus had to say in saying that it's just so exclusive that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. And then to hear that he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And it is no more clear than that. Crystal clear, weighty, heavy, to consider the very fact that I and, and, and you deserve death and hell and separation and the heaviness of the wrath of God but by the work of Christ, because of the grace of God toward us, He grants us life. It's incredible. And here we see that God establishes the very fact that His authority and His worship is above everything else. He values that. Prideful? No. Hubris? No. If there's no one above Him, who else will He point us to to worship? And there is no one else. 
The second thing that we see that he values in his word, and look, and it's, it's interesting, uh, is the relationships that we have with each other and what is necessary in the course of our living together that promotes human flourishing and health. In other words, God cares about his image bearers. He cares about himself and he cares about his image bearers. If you'll look at those, those last six, all of those are as they relate to other people. Why? Because he cares about them and he expects his people to care about the Imago Dei, the image bearers of God. Did you know that every person in here is an image bearer of God? Whether you've trusted Christ or not, you are an image bearer of God. You've been created in the image of God. And in the same way that God cares about his image bearers, so also should I care about every image bearer. And every image bearer should care about every other image bearer. That is what God is trying to communicate. To what extent? even to the point that he cares about slaves. Look in chapter 21. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. Now all of this flows out of what he has just said in the, in, in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Now he is helping us find application for it to show us the things that he values. He says, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. God cared about the way his people dealt with each other, even in indentured servanthood. What was the point? Well, no man really owned anyone. That wasn't the point. They worked out their agreement, and then they were set free. In other words, there was an end to that commitment because there was only one commitment that preceded all other commitments and that is the commitment that God was making to them and that they were making to God when they said, God, I trust you. God, I love you. God, I obey you. What is that telling us? That is telling us that our primary relationship, regardless of our circumstances in life, is a relationship that we have with God. Not that we establish on our own, because we don't, we won't come to God that way. But by virtue of the fact that He has come to us, He becomes first and foremost in our lives. Even in application with slavery. He valued justice. Look in verse 12 of chapter 21. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. He's upholding life. Remember he had said that we were not to murder, we weren't to kill. That, but now he's coming. God's understanding that there's some things that are going to go on in the course of life where somebody's life is going to be lost. And now God's, we're concerned about justice. But if he did not lie and wait for him, in other words, he's pressing on the intent of the heart here. If you didn't lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. We're not going to look at that now, but 
uh, for those who, who may wonder, what, what was that place? Well, God established cities of refuge throughout, th- throughout Israel. And in this event, uh, if there is an altercation, was it murder, man's life dies, who knows, nobody there, no witness, the person who committed the act and took the life could flee to a city of refuge and had to stay there. If he came out, then someone could come get him. But God understood that men's justice and their ability to know all was limited. was clear. It was limited. And God is about justice. Look on down and see what he, what he, how he carries that out. Look in, verse, look in verse 23. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, Burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. He's saying no more it can be exacted than what should be exacted in the course of justice. That's what he's saying. He's placing parameters on our judgment and our justice. He knows we need that. Why? For human flourishing. To help in our society. To help as we relate to each other. Notice what else he Values. He values personal responsibility. Look in verse 33. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, uh, and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restitution. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. You say, that seems kind of odd. No. It meant that in every turn, in our actions and in the actions of God's people, we should be giving attention to what we are creating and be responsible for those things and be held accountable. He says, I value personal property. Look in verse 1 of chapter 22. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for an for a sheep. Why? Because restitution was to be paid because personal property was something that God valued. Notice what he says about people in general. Look uh, at, at the fact that he cares about those who are not of Israel. So he's not just talking about his people. Look in verse 21 of chapter 22. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. They knew how they had been mistreated. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I'll surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. You see, God was giving his people a guide to live by so that they would represent him and reflect what? When Jesus was asked about the greatest command, what did he say? That you should love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second is likened to it, you shall do what? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Why is loving God important? Because He has loved us first and enables us to love others to do what? To carry out His law lovingly. To live lovingly in community. You remember whenever we headed out as Oak Valley, one of the very first things that we did was we uh, worked through a book together, Compelling Community. You, do you remember, the, you, you remember the, the emphasis of that? You know what separates the body of Christ from everyone else? You know what should be most compelling and most desirable about what people see in the body of Christ? The way that we love and care for each other and the way that we care for others, representing, carrying out, living like God's children. Living like God's people. In other words, responding to the needs of others in the way that God would respond to their needs. That is why this is so incredibly important. Will being this make us His children? Will doing this somehow or another make us His children? No. No. I, I grew up in a home, and like many of you did, and, and there, was a, there was a law. It was what my daddy said, and it's what my daddy said, and it was that way, and there was no other way. Okay? And I understood that. My doing what he said do didn't make me his son. I was already his son. My living according to Sugg's law, his law, my living according to that law reflected the fact that I was a Suggs and I was his son. In the same way that keeping the law will not make us a child of God. But the intent of the law is for us to reflect the character and the values of our Father who has loved us and who in Christ has given himself for us. In closing, and you're probably glad to hear that word, and it will just be reading a text, I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Actually, let's look at part of chapter 2 first. I want to read this text. This is our closing before we come to the table this morning. Okay? I said the law, the book of the covenant, shows us the character of God. But there's something else that it does. It condemns sin and it points us, pushes us to Christ. It's hard to get around Romans 3.23 for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you haven't heard anything else today and you're kind of struggling to stay, stay with us here, hear that again. 
for all, meaning every one of you, me. And if there were 10,000 people in here, the word would be the same, even if I didn't know them. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have broken the law of God. Okay? Now listen with that. That is heavy and hard. But now listen at this in verse 15, chapter 2, Galatians. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. That covenant, the book of the covenant was misunderstood by those who felt that keeping this would justify them. He said, right, person's not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. In chapter 3, verse 7. Know then that this is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things in the book of the law, this book of the covenant. Cursed be them if you do not do them all. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Why? Because everyone has broken the law. The righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who denies them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. In verse 22, that the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe why close with that text simply this we have emphasized the importance of knowing the character of God today we have been confronted from beginning to end the condemnation of sin that condemnation leading to the death of Christ and it is his keeping of the law and perfection and his atoning death that is made possible for us to have life. As we come to the table this morning, 
ask um, Mike if he would to come and prepare the table. As Mike comes and prepares the table, if you have trusted Christ, if you've been baptized, if you're in good standing with your church, we invite you to come and remember the Lord's righteousness and His death, which has made possible for us to sing as we sung this morning uh, that Christ receiveth sinful men and to continue and sing it o'er and o'er and o'er again and know that that has been possible because of what Christ has done for you on Calvary and has done by walking in obedience. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you, Lord, for giving us the law. Father, I run headlong into it and, and see my sin in, in, in every area. And I come before you broken today. But I also come thankful today for your grace toward me in Christ and toward us in Christ. Father, I know that the law will not justify me. It only condemns me. But I am grateful when I look at the law to know that Christ has kept that in full and has fulfilled it and then has gone before me and died my death that I may have life. Calls us now, Father, to see Him in a way and in a fullness and with a weight that we have not before that would ultimately impact the way we respond to you as we trust you, as we love you, and as we obey you. In Jesus' name, amen.